The United States is not the happiest place on earth. Turns out that Finland is. That's according to the United Nations in this year's World Happiness Report. The U.S. ends up number 16 out of 150 countries at a time when there is, quote, a slight long-term decline in the enjoyment of life all over the world. So if you're feeling a challenge when it comes to happiness, you're not alone. That's why you'll want to hear from Cassie Holmes, whose goal is to help you get happy and you don't have to move to Finland. Cassie Holmes is a professor at the UCLA Anderson School of Management, and she's written a book called Happier Hour. I'm Orman Aldi, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from UCLA Anderson and Cassie Holmes. Welcome aboard. Hi, Warren. Thanks for having me. This is such a treat. Well, it's great to have you. So why did you write this book? I wrote this book so that more people can understand how to invest their time to be happier. My research is on that exact subject of happiness. And I've been teaching a course here at UCLA and the Anderson School of Management for our MBAs and our executive MBAs called Applying the Science of Happiness to Life Design, which is exactly that, applying the science behind our emotional well-being so that our students can improve their happiness in the day-to-day as well as their satisfaction with their lives more generally, both in their professional domain as well as personal domain. And it's been so rewarding to see the impact that it's had on my students' lives and in seeing that there's only so many spots in my classroom. (laughs) So I wanted these learnings to reach more people so that more people could be happier. And so I wrote Happier Hour so that many more people can spend their hours more happily. Given what you just said about how they spend their hours, it seems to me when you get to the definition of what is happiness, what it has to do with, according to you, is how you organize your time. It's all about time. Yeah. And when I say happiness, what I mean is how we feel in the day-to-day. So feeling more positive emotion, less negative emotion, but also there's an evaluative component. So how satisfied folks feel with their lives overall. And so happiness is in (laughs) in trying to help people be happier. It's both of those arenas. So they feel good in the day to day and more satisfied and fulfilled in their lives. All of us, I think, have reasons for not being happy that have to do with unfulfilled desires or expectations and things that we wish we had but never got around to doing or things we want that we never got around to buying. How do you overcome that kind of thing? Yeah, and that's a really important question and something that I address head on early in the course, pointing out that a lot of these things that we think are the secrets to happiness, if only I had a whole lot more money, if only I had that fancy car, big house, if only I found the love of my life that I would get married, then surely I would be happy Interestingly, research looking at the effects of those sort of circumstantial factors shows that they do have some effect, but a significantly smaller effect than we think. Income level, for instance, does have an effect, but again, it's folks who have a whole lot more money aren't happier and don't experience as much lasting happiness as we think. And there's a couple of reasons for that. 
One is that we adapt. So through hedonic adaptation, it's our tendency to get used to things over time. It's good that we adapt when bad things happen because it makes us resilient. But what also happens is when something really great happens, it initially has a really big effect. So if you get a huge raise, once you move into that bigger house or get that fancier car, what the research shows is that within a few years and the amount of time it takes to return to your baseline depends on (laughs) the particular event. But people adapt and they return to their baseline over time. And this is important to recognize because as we're looking at what are the inputs into our happiness, yes, there are these circumstantial factors. We don't have a lot of control over them and we adapt to them over time. Also, as we're assessing, there's always someone who's going to be more attractive. There's always someone with more money. There's always someone with an even bigger house. And if we're looking to these external reference points to assess how we're feeling and doing, we are susceptible to feel pretty lousy because we do pay more attention to those who are better off than us on whatever dimension that is than those who we are more fortunate than There's another sort of input that we also don't have control over, and that's our natural disposition. So were you born as a naturally cheery person, or are you more of a natural grump? Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of control over that. But what we do have control over is what we do and what we're thinking about in the day-to-day, in particular, how are we spending our time and how do we approach that time that we're spending? What's our mindset? That's what drives my research. That is the underpinning of the book is identifying and sharing what are those factors that do increase our happiness. It is spending time in ways that really deeply and genuinely connect us with others. It is making sure that we're exercising as that sort of mood boost, that we are well rested, and that we are spending our time in ways that give us a sense of agency and accomplishment and fulfillment. Happiness is a choice. We have more control in our happiness than we think. We don't have to just hope for, wishing for, if only we had more money or were prettier. It's about investing the time better and not being distracted during those moments of joy. You define some interesting terms. One of them is time poverty. The other is time affluence. Obviously, they're opposed to each other. Yeah, So time poverty is this acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it all. And even if you haven't heard the term, I suspect that so many can relate to that feeling. And it's prevalent. I conducted with a postdoc here at UCLA, Maria Trupia, a national poll. And we found that nearly half of Americans feel time poor. And this is bad because it has really negative ramifications. We find that people who are more time poor are less healthy, so less likely to exercise, more likely to eat fast food, which is unhealthy. They delay going to the doctor. It also makes people less nice. So when people feel time poor, they're less likely to spend the time to help others, which is bad for happiness and kindness. It also decreases our sense of confidence, our sort of sense that we can achieve all that we set out to do. And 
it makes us less happy. So we found that when people feel more time poor, they feel less positive emotion in the day-to-day. They feel greater negative emotion. They feel more stress and more worry. And they feel a lower sense of meaning and fulfillment in their lives. So it is bad. And it is prevalent. And it is more prevalent among some than others. So you see that women tend to feel more time poor than men. Working parents in particular are temporally impoverished, but all types of people feel that they lack for time. There's research all around the globe that finds that across nations, there are individuals who feel like they're suffering from this hectic pace of life. Now, time affluence is on the other side of that sort of dimension. So it is when you feel like you have lots of time, plenty of time. And in some cases, we found in our research that there's such thing as sort of having too much time, too many available hours in anyone's day. And we actually find that when people feel like they have too much discretionary time, they also feel a lacking sense of happiness. And I can talk about that research if you'd like. I would like. Tell us more. So (laughs) it was actually motivated by earlier in my career. Um, I remember this night really distinctly of I had a new baby at home and I had agreed to give a talk up at Columbia's Business School in New York. And I was at Wharton at the time, so living in Philly. And it was one of those days I got up so super early, missing out on those morning cuddles with my baby and went out to give this presentation. And it was flanked by back-to-back meetings, a networking dinner, and I was rushing to get the last train that would get me home to my baby and my husband. And I remember as I was exhausted sitting on that train, looking out the window at the sort of houses and the trees whizzing by. And I was like, holy cow, life is just going so fast. And I don't know if I can keep up. As I was sort of wondering, it's like between the pressures of work, family, I was like, if only I had a whole lot more time, I would be happier, sort of thinking, maybe I can't do it all. Maybe I should quit and move to a sunny, slow-paced island somewhere and have a whole lot more time. And I recruited a couple of my favorite collaborators, Hal Hirschfield, who's a professor at UCLA, and Marissa Sharif, who's at Wharton. And what we did was we wanted to test does having more time make people happier? And in particular, what's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have in their daily lives and their happiness? And so we conducted a bunch of studies, among which we analyzed data from the American Time Use Survey. It looks across tens of thousands of working and non-working Americans, how they spent a regular day so we could calculate how much Time did they spend on discretionary activities and their happiness? And what we found was really surprising. So we did find that with too little time, people were unhappy. So that was me on the train that night, all of us in those moments of feeling time poor because of the greater sense of stress. But what was interesting was that beyond a certain amount, and in this particular data set, it was more than approximately five hours of discretionary time in one day. We also saw that people were less happy. 
And that was interesting because what it suggests is that I should not quit my job and, you know, spend all my days hanging out at the beach, right? In fact, it's when people feel like they have nothing to show for all the hours in their day, you see that there's a lacking sense of purpose. And with that comes less satisfaction. And so when there is so much discretionary time, and in particular discretionary time spent in ways that don't feel worthwhile, then you see this drop in happiness. So too much time is bad as well. I think it's worth pointing out that, of course, from an objective standpoint, time doesn't change. It's a constant. And it's all about how you feel that you're focused on. And in the process of that, what you've come up with is a way that you can craft your time. And that's really what your book is about. Yeah. And it is really an important point because A, we all have 24 hours in a day. And what our data showed is that except at the very extremes, there's this pretty wide swath in the data, even, you know, between two and five hours of discretionary time in a day, where it's not about how much time you have. It really is how you invest the time you have. And that is what sort of set me on my course from that point in terms of my research and in terms of my teaching. And it's really about how do we invest the time that we have so that we feel really fulfilled, so that you're looking back on your days and it's not just that they're overly full, but that they feel fulfilling. And it's about maximizing and spending and investing more in those worthwhile ways of spending and minimizing the time that feels wasteful. And as you go through the book, more and more, you devise ways in which people can craft their time, ultimately to the point where you can design your ideal week. Tell us how that works. Well, a first step is actually to identify for oneself what are those worthwhile and wasteful ways to spend. Because with that information, then you can figure out, okay, I need to prioritize and make the time for those worthwhile ways and to the extent minimize the time in those wasteful ways. And so this first identification process is really important. And for that, I talk about a time tracking exercise. And this is an assignment I give my students. And it's basically over the course of a week, or I would actually um, recommend two weeks because it gets a more complete representation of the activities that fill your day, is tracking how you're spending your time. So writing down, what are you spending your time doing? What are the activities? And being fairly specific for yourself. So it's not just like, I am working. But it's what type of work are you doing? And in addition to writing down how you're spending your time or the activities, also rating on a 10-point scale how happy you felt doing that activity. And when I say happiness here, it isn't just sort of like, oh, was it super fun and pleasurable? It is, again, this how satisfied, how fulfilling, how worthwhile. Maybe it's because it was really exciting and energizing. Maybe it was because it was really relaxing and refreshing. With this data set that you've collected for yourself, what it allows you to do is look back and look at what are those activities that got the highest rating. So what are your most worthwhile ways of spending? 
as well as what are those more wasteful ways. And in addition to identifying sort of the types of activities, you can also look at commonalities across those sort of happiest and least happy activities, which can be quite illuminating. In addition to the identification of the types of activities or the categorizing of them, you can also see just how much time you're spending on your various activities. It's quite notable when my students do this, they will, for instance, see like, holy cow, I'm spending a lot of time on something that I thought I actually enjoyed. For instance, being on social media or watching TV. People have this sense that it's like, oh yeah, this is sort of my fun treat time. And I'm just doing, you know, particularly with social media, it'll just be a couple minutes that I'll check. But when you're looking at just how much time you're spending, I have students noting, it's like, and these are busy students. So folks that are earning their degree, as well as some of them are working full time at the same time, have family, have social lives outside. These are busy folks and recognizing, holy cow, I spent, you know, dozen hours on social media. Even more than that is recognizing that the average rating, their happiness ratings while on social media is like a four out of 10. Whereas there's these other activities, oftentimes that involve social connection, like meeting up with one sister for dinner after work or before class. That's like a, you know, a nine or a 10 on the scale, but folks feel that they don't have time for those activities. And so this is quite illustrative of not only the types of activities that are spending your time on and how worthwhile versus wasteful it is. With this information, then you can, as you're crafting your upcoming week, you can make sure that you do prioritize and spend the time on those activities that have those dimensions that you know are going to be fulfilling or are going to feel worthwhile and minimizing the amount of time you spend on those activities that in some cases are totally a waste, like they're not even that fun and they don't serve purpose otherwise. And then, of course, you do identify what are those activities that you do have to do, even if they're not necessarily fun. And I share some strategies and how to make those activities that feel like a chore more enjoyable. I like that. The concept of chores are things that you absolutely have to do, whether they give you happiness or not. Uh, one of the things you talk about is bundling. Tell us about bundling. That is one of these really helpful and it's simple, but surprisingly impactful strategies. And it comes out of research by uh, Katie Milkman and her colleagues. And what it is, is basically when you have a chore, so you've identified an activity that gets a low happiness rating. It is not very fun, but it is something you have to do. We also have some activities actually at work that feel quite chore-like. And bundling is basically doing more fun activity at the same time. So that chore feels more fun. So an example that I talk about because I do it and it's helpful is folding laundry. This is a chore that has to happen. And instead of feeling sort of grumpy as you're folding your laundry, wishing that you were spending your time in other ways, if you instead were listening to you know, how the world works podcast, then that becomes enriching and educational and illuminating time. 
Or if while you're commuting, that's often time that feels like a waste. The average American commutes about 30 minutes each way. So that's an hour out of their day that they're just waiting to get through. If you listen to an audiobook during that time, then that time all of a sudden feels more fulfilling. And you might even look forward to your commute. Going back to time poverty, one of the things that I ask folks is to complete the sentence, I don't have time to. And you see what folks don't feel like they have time to do. Reading for pleasure is one of those things that is mentioned often. But if you used your chore-like time in your day, that typically feels like a waste that you're waiting through, and instead listen to audiobooks, then you'd actually would be able to read slash listen to books for pleasure. So bundling is very effective. So I'm glad you used the term, how the world works. That's the name of our podcast. And of course, what we're talking about is not just how the world operates, but also how we go about doing our jobs and how we can do it better. One of the things you talk about which does not involve working is meditation. And that's something you have to take time to do, but it's, I take it, very effective. Yeah. And meditation is really important because it helps quell anxiety. So over the last couple of years, I mean, as we all know, it's been a trying time and period for all of us. We've seen that rates of anxiety have increased dramatically. And what anxiety is, it's this sort of fear of what's to come, the unknown. And it comes from not having a sense of having control and uncertainty We are often distracted during the day. There's interesting work that shows it sort of pinged people over the course of their day and was asking, what are you doing right now? What are you thinking about? Are you focusing on what you're doing? Are you thinking about something else? And how happy are you? And what the research found was that people are distracted almost 50% of the time. That is, their mind is on something other than what they're doing. And this is not ideal because with that question of how are you feeling, what the research showed is that across the particular activity that you're doing, when people's minds were wandering, when they were distracted, when they were not focusing on what they were doing, they were less happy. So between anxiety and between trying to quell our propensity to mind wander, what meditation does is basically practicing pulling your attention and focusing on your attention to a particular point. Oftentimes for mindfulness meditation and breath meditation, it is drawing your attention to your present experience, which is helpful because it reduces anxiety because you are just there in the moment with your breath. But it's a practice of meditation that I'm actually really bad at. (laughs) In my course, I rely on experts for it. But It's the practice so that you can apply that mindfulness of paying attention to the present moment as you're doing your activities across the day. So yes, it might take a few minutes to practice meditation. The goal is so that you can apply that sort of muscle, so to speak, throughout your other activities as you're spending your time so that you are paying more attention to the moment. Back to the issue of time crafting. You're talking about people writing things down, uh, as you said, designing the ideal week. 
What are some of the things that you want to touch on? We've talked about a couple of them, but you have such ideas as no phone zones and focusing on what's good and bundling and writing that down and keeping track of it all. Yeah. From your time tracking, you've identified what are those activities that are really worthwhile, that they are a potential source of joy, whether it is outside of your professional life. So spending time with the people you love, your friends and family, or maybe the time within your professional life, those hours that are really fulfilling because that's the like exciting, productive work that is aligned with your purpose, like why you're doing the work that you're doing. If we're distracted during those times, then we don't enjoy them as much. And also we aren't able to even reach those moments of say flow. So flow is this wonderful state where you're fully engaged in what you're doing That's where you really create and think deeply and broadly and sort of produce your best work. You're sort of at your best self. But so often our days are fragmented that we don't create that space to get into flow. And so one of the ways to do that is to carve out times as no phone zone. So putting your phone away, because what is the phone doing? It is distracting, right? It is not only allowing you to sort of quickly check social media or quickly check your email. But the mere presence of it leads you to think about all the other things you can and maybe should be doing. And there's actually an interesting study that was conducted by Liz Dunn and her colleagues, where they had groups of friends who were dining together and they had them either leave their phones on the table or put their phones away out of sight. And they had a cover story for why. And what they found was that those who had their phone put away out of sight, they were more engaged during the meal and they enjoyed the time more. The mere presence of the phone served as a distraction and um, undermined their enjoyment. So for those times that you carve out and prioritize as worthwhile ways to spend, it's helpful to make those no phone zones. So removing the distraction. It's really important to prioritize these most worthwhile ways of spending. And I'll share with you sort of parable or analogy that I share with my students on the first day of class because it's so sticky and it highlights the importance of prioritizing. So I show them this short film where a professor comes in the first day of class and he puts a big clear jar onto the desk and then From a bag, he pulls out a bunch of golf balls and pours them into the jar such that they reach the very top. And he asks, is the jar full? And the students are like, yes, the jar looks full. And then he sort of chuckles. And from the bag, he brings out pebbles and he pours the pebbles into the jar. And the pebbles sort of fill in around the golf balls up to the top of the jar. And he asks the students, is the jar full? And the students are sort of laughing. It's like, yes, the jar is full. And then he, (laughs) from the bag, brings out sand and he pours the sand into the jar such that it reaches the top. And the sand fills in all the spaces around the pebbles and around the golf balls. And he asks the students, is the jar full? And they're all laughing at this point. And they're like, yes, the jar is full. And he points out, he's like, the space is the time of your life. The golf balls are the things that are really important, those worthwhile ways of spending, those things that bring you joy. 
like your relationships, like that really purposeful work. The pebbles are all these other things that you sort of have to do, maybe the chores that we were mentioning. The sand is everything else. It's all the stuff that just sort of fills your time, those requests that you thoughtlessly say yes to. It's the filler, maybe social media, you know, the endless inbox um, of email. And what he points out is that if he put the sand in first, all of those golf balls actually wouldn't have fit in the jar, which points out that if we let our time get filled without prioritizing and making time and carving out time for our golf balls, then we won't have enough time for those important moments of joy. One of the things that you ask of your students is that they write their own eulogies. And that's interesting in two ways, it seems to me. One is that you get them to do it when they're young. The other is that I take it that research shows that there are changes in how you feel about happiness and the things that you need to do as you get older. Yeah. And so the eulogy assignment is an intense one, for sure. And the purpose of it is to lead people to think about their time more broadly. So Happier Hour, my book is talking about hours, but it's really because how we spend our hours sum up to our days, sum up to our years, our decades, and our life overall. So it's really not a book about how you schedule the day-to-day as much as it is in pursuit of an overall life that is fulfilling, that you can look back on without regret and with a great deal of fulfillment. So what the eulogy assignment does is it urges students, it urges folks to think about their life overall. What life do they want to live when looking back and taking, you know, a eulogy is shared by someone else who is talking about your life. But in reflecting back on the life you lived, what do you want people to say? What do you want your legacy to be? And in writing your own eulogy, what that really clarifies is what is important to you. You can think about what are three words that you want to be said about you at the end of your life? How do you want people to remember you? And that clarifies what are those things that are really important to you? What are your values? What matters? And that's helpful because taking that life view informs how we spend our hours. It ladders back to this question of like, okay, that's important to me. That's the life I want to live. How does that influence the choice I make and how I spend my next hour? How does that influence where I put my golf balls and that I put my golf balls into the upcoming schedule of the coming week? And again, that changes as you get older, uh, how you reflect on your life. But when you're older, you have something to reflect on rather than hope for the future. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up the sort of role of life phases. I look at what is the effect of age on not only the types of experiences that elicit happiness, but also how we experience happiness. And so we looked at the blogosphere (laughs) before the age of social media. People sort of shared their thoughts and feelings. And what we did was we captured anytime someone wrote, I feel or I am feeling happy, what were they expressing? And from that, among these millions of instances of expressions of happiness and feelings of happiness, we saw that there were sort of two buckets. There was the excited, loud happiness, 
But there was also that calm, contented happiness. And we could look at the blogger's profile information and identify who was expressing these various types of happiness. And what we found was that younger people tend to express greater excited happiness. And then you saw that as people got older, they were more likely to express the calm, contented happiness. And that suggests that how we feel happiness shifts. And there's also, uh, in terms of the types of experiences that elicit happiness, we found that young people tend to feel greater happiness from extraordinary experiences. So the once-in-a-lifetime vacations, the life milestones, like graduation, getting married, having a baby. But what was interesting is that older people, while they also felt great amounts of happiness from those extraordinary experiences, they found increasing happiness from the ordinary experiences, those simple moments shared with loved ones, friends, family, pets, enjoying a treat, noticing nature around you as a sort of beautiful sunset. What we saw was that among older people, those ordinary moments produced as much happiness as the extraordinary experiences. But interestingly, it's not about age per se. It's really about recognizing how much time one has left in life and really the preciousness of that time. I think we're actually seeing that in the population more generally, younger people too are savoring more, recognizing those simple pleasures just because we realize we can't take them for granted. I just want to reflect on this. As you talk about this very hands-on strategy for managing your time and charting it and writing it down, everything you've said is based on research. And I think it's very important that people realize that when they uh, take a look at this book, which is called Happier Hour. And once again, Cassie Holmes, professor at the UCLA Anderson School of Management, is the author. And Cassie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. It was worthwhile and lovely and joyful time. I'm Warren Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from UCLA Anderson. Thanks a lot for listening. Please join us again.